Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. Well, Kimberly, we should really kick off today's show talking about last Friday uh, because the court dropped some big news at the end of the day on us. When it announced it, we'll hear former President Donald Trump's appeal of that Colorado Supreme Court decision. That's the one that removed Trump from the state's 2024 primary ballot. I know we already have talked about this case a little bit. Um, We definitely did so last week. But can you just give us an update? You know, what did the justices do last Friday other than say, we're going to hear this? Well, um, the court not only agreed to hear the former president's appeal, but it also fast-tracked the briefing schedule so that the justices could hear oral arguments on the case February 8th. Ooh, that's fast. Of this year of 2024. Um, They didn't say, obviously, when they're going to make their final decision, but primary season will be underway in many places shortly. And Colorado itself is part of the group of states that vote on Super Tuesday, which is March 5th. So I think all this means that the justices are going to try to get out an opinion as fast as they possibly can, but probably not as fast as the Bush v. Gore court, which issued an opinion the day after oral argument, but still fast. So the justices did not take up a separate appeal by the Colorado Republican Party, though. Um, That's still pending. So does that tell us anything? Yeah, Lydia, I'm not sure. Um, One thing that's different about the two appeals is the issues that the parties asked the justices to take up. So if you look at the Colorado GOP, they asked the justices to consider three distinct issues related to whether the insurrection clause applies to the president, whether the constitutional provision has to have some sort of congressional action before it can be enforced, and then also um, making a First Amendment challenge with the judiciary's attempt to interfere with their choice of their presidential candidate. But President Trump's appeal was much more open-ended. So the question presented there is whether, quote, the Colorado Supreme Court erred in ordering President Trump's exclusion from the 2024 presidential primary ballot. Um, so that includes a lot of other, any issues, really. Um, things like, you know, whether or not courts should stay out of this kind of dispute altogether, and whether January 6th was even an insurrection that would qualify for this. So it's pretty broad in the question that President Trump asked the justices to hear and that they agreed to. I'm wondering, though, if this actually might make it easier for the justices to come to some sort of broad resolution and avoid, you know, a divided opinion on this one. Right. When we talked about this case before, um, you said that you think the biggest thing for the justices here might be the fact that they try to find some you know, way to speak with one voice or at least a 7-2 voice. Uh, do you still think that's top of mind for them, You know, especially considering that Trump's appeal over criminal immunity is still looming? Yeah, I do, Lydia. And I think that that looming appeal sort of actually brings the stakes up a bit. So to remind listeners, the D.C. Circuit heard arguments in that case earlier this week. And the question there is whether former President Trump is entitled to absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for actions taken while still in office. The judges in that case seemed pretty skeptical of President Trump's arguments. And so that case might work its way up pretty quickly to the Supreme Court. Um, So if we take that case along with the 14th Amendment insurrection clause cases together, you know, it could give the justices a chance to rule, you know, against the president on immunity, but for the president on the insurrection clause. 
you know, that could be sort of a win-win in their book, a win-loss win-win in their book, I guess. Um, but again, I think no matter what the justices do, there are going to be many on the court who are very aware that a divided ruling, especially along ideological lines in either of these cases, is going to be really bad for the country. But Lydia, Trump wasn't the only big case on Friday that the court agreed to hear. They also agreed to hear a dispute over whether hospitals can perform abortions in emergency situations in states that have near total bans on the procedure. So yay, another abortion case. Lydia, can you tell us what's happening here? Yeah, so Idaho officials are arguing um, that they should be able to enforce the state's ban on abortions, except when it's necessary uh, to save the mother's life. So the federal government here says that that exception is narrower than the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, also known as EMTALA, that protects patients not only from imminent death, but also from emergencies that seriously threaten um, the health of the mother. And the federal government is arguing that, therefore, the state law criminalizes care that's required um, by the law. And so the court, in granting that case, didn't just say, hey, we'll hear the case, but they also released an order with it. What did they say there? So the court, without any explanation, said that the Idaho law can take effect while this case is playing out. You know, the court's order blocks an injunction that a trial judge put in place uh, to let hospitals keep performing abortions in medical emergencies. So is that a ruling against the Biden administration while also taking up the appeal? In a way, yeah. Um, So Lydia, this is our second abortion case of this term. Um, Can you remind us about the Mifepristone case as well? Right. So the court has had already agreed to hear disputes over the availability of that key abortion drug called Mifepristone. And those cases broadly test the power that federal judges have to overrule Food and Drug Administration decisions on the efficacy and safety of drugs and medical devices. So that's uh, the other big abortion case. Um, So we now have two on the docket. Two abortion cases, one Trump case, January 6th, another Trump case coming up. Everything we had before, including the cases that we're going to talk about. I mean, have we ever had a term like this one before? Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, You know, a lot of people at the start of this term thought the focus was going to be on those cases challenging the administrative state. Um, But people I've spoken to say uh, that those could just end up really being a footnote by the time that we look back on the term. All right, Lydia. So let's remind people about those two administrative law cases that could end up being a footnote on the term. These are challenges to the so-called Chevron Doctrine, an administrative law principle that says that federal courts should defer to administrative agencies when they're interpreting laws that are ambiguous. Both of those cases started out as challenges brought by herring fishermen to regulations that require them to pay for supervisors on their fishing boats, but it's come to take on much more significance. The court will hear arguments in both of those cases on Wednesday. And joining us to talk about them and what's at stake is Sam Sankar, Senior Vice President for Programs at Earth Justice. Wondering first, Sam, if you can start off by telling us sort of what's being argued in these cases and who is behind them. We hear a lot about fishermen, but are there others? Well, that's a that's a good place to start, because what I tell people when we're talking about this case is to step back. And this case isn't really about herring fishermen. The case was brought by a group of herring fishermen, but it's absolutely clear that from the start, this was a concerted push by a a bunch of different stakeholders and that there are a lot of interests behind this case. What's most interesting to me is that the Supreme Court is not 
interested in the question that the herring fishermen are, are supposedly interested in, which is whether or not um, the observers, whether they have to pay for the observers who are on their vessels, but rather this pretty abstract question about this Chevron deference doctrine. And I think that's at least in part because if you told people on the street that this case was about the Chevron deference doctrine, they would probably fall right asleep. But if you tell people that it's about the ways in which herring fishermen can be asked to pay for the way they make their living, well, that's a much more compelling case. But again, what's interesting is the Supreme Court isn't willing to answer that question. It's really answering a different question in the case. Can you remind listeners um, what Chevron held and you know what was the reasoning behind uh, the deference to administrative agencies? But in a way that won't put our listeners to sleep since <laughs> since yeah. you already put that risk in there. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, this is bread and butter for many lawyers who work in the public interest and for people who are interested in things like public safety and environmental regulation and things like that. Um, and in the wake of the, uh, the, the Boeing disaster is something that's very much on everybody's mind these days. The basic idea in the Chevron case, which was decided way back in 1984, is that Congress writes a lot of laws and that when Congress writes laws, in fact, when anybody writes even just a regular sentence, there's a lot of ambiguity in the language there. So the Chevron case in 1984, the decision effectively says, look, in these situations where the law is ambiguous, the words are ambiguous, we start by checking to see what the agency says that these words should mean. And as long as what the agency is saying is a reasonable construction of those words, we, the judiciary, are going to say, hey, look, the agency is the one that Congress charged with implementing the statute. Um, and so we're going to let the agency have the first shot at it. Among other things, that agency is under political control. So the president tells the agency what to do, or at least has a lot of control over it. If people who don't like the decision feel like it was really wrong, they can go to the president. They can vote for a different person. There's a lot of accountability on that. But the people who decided the Chevron decision back in 1984, that Supreme Court, said, we aren't. And we don't know that much. We are not experts in, say, herring fishing or in fisheries regulation. So we're just going to let the experts figure this one out in the first distance unless it's clearly wrong what they're trying to do. And so that all sounds very well and good. But lately, there's been a lot of criticism um, over the Chevron doctrine. Can you sort of pretend like you're on the other side of this and tell me what, what is the basis for that criticism? Well, I think the basis for the criticism is the idea that these agencies are running amok, that they're doing things that Congress never intended for them to do, and that we need the courts to rein them in. What I find interesting about that critique is that the people who rejected that critique have included people like Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas both of whom, Justice Scalia consistently was a defender of the Chevron principle, and Justice Thomas wrote an opinion back in 2005 in which he said this is the way it should work. Now, what's changed for those people who are against this is, I would say, the composition of the Supreme Court and a recognition that they aren't getting what they want through the political processes. So voters, by and large, favor environmental protection and public health protections. Corporations don't for the most part. And so as a result, what's happening is we're shipped, we're seeing all these powerful interest groups shift their focus to the courts. They're saying we can't seem to get it through the political process. We even got Donald Trump elected president. He still didn't change these things. 
So what's left? Let's go to the Supreme Court. Let's get them to take more power away from the political branches and then exercise their anti-regulatory viewpoint to strike down some of these regulations. I wonder, too, we've been uh, reporting this case a lot. And as I talk to people, you know, they talk about some of the groups that are behind this case, what you call powerful interest groups. Um, One of them is definitely businesses. The argument that I've been hearing is that Chevron was meant to sort of um, smooth out the volatility that was happening in regulations. And that, you know, particularly as Congress has done less and less, that that really has not happened, that actually it's become more volatile because you see, you know, the Obama administration coming in and the agencies say one thing and then, you know, we get Trump for four years and the agencies say something totally different and then in comes Biden and, you know, we're back full circle. So is that a valid criticism that Chevron sort of isn't doing what it was intended to do, which is kind of provides stability in the law? I think what, I I wouldn't say that Chevron was intended to provide stability so much as Chevron was intended to avoid judges making once and for all decisions that weren't fully informed in the context of a specific case. So judges don't see every possible iteration of the way a law can work out. So what the judges are saying is, hey, if we get in there and say, this is what these words mean always, because we see this one case brought by these particular fishermen. That's the way it's going to work out everywhere for everybody, even if the agency is saying it's a little more complicated than that, folks. We administer this, administer this statute all over the country in lots of different ways, and that interpretation will cause problems in these other ways. I would say Chevron says, let's move these kinds of decisions. When the statute is ambiguous and it's not obvious what it means, let's move those kinds of decisions away from the judiciary and towards people who have expertise and accountability. Again, I mean, I think the principles that Justice, if you look at Justice Scalia's speech that he gave explaining why this is, he said this reflects the reality of modern government. These are complicated regulatory statutes. We as judges see a little teeny window into this. I went to law school, not fisheries management school. Can you walk us through what the, the government is arguing in these cases? You know, why should the court keep Chevron? So I would step back for a minute and say it's interesting. The Chevron case, Chevron was is the full title of the case is actually Chevron versus NRDC, right? And NRDC, an environmental group, lost. So the Chevron case in its original iteration stands for the fact that EPA has the discretion to use these statutes in ways that make sense. That case was about the Clean Air Act and what the EPA was saying was, we're going to treat industrial facilities in this holistic way that allows them to reduce a little and gain a little and whatever, and basically gives them way more flexibility in meeting these compliance things. And NRDC said, no, 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 no. The language of the law doesn't really work for that. So it's a, it's a loss. And what the government is saying is, number one, we've built an entire system of government around this idea that Congress has broadly worded laws, laws like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, which use incredibly expansive language. If you look at the the Clean Water Act, it says things like, we wanna eliminate pollution of waterways by the mid-1980s. EPA is charged with restoring the chemical and biological and physical integrity of our waters. So there are these broad statutes and that there is political control of the agencies that implement them. What the government is saying is, hey, look, lots of people have control over these agencies. And the foundation of modern government is that Congress sets the terms of the debate 
and the work on the ground gets done by agencies. And when you insert courts into that to say, we play this role, it destabilizes that understanding and makes regulation much more difficult and much more unpredictable. It's interesting that you you said that um, one of the government's arguments is that, you know, we've sort of built the entire governmental system on this. I'm wondering, the justices who considered Chevron, did they ever think that it would sort of take on um, sort of the importance that it has taken on? And also then, you know, given the importance that it has come to mean in administrative law, what are the stakes here? I mean, what happens if the Supreme Court does overturn Chevron deference here? All of those are very good questions. And one of the things that's interested me all the way along in this is that I used to argue a lot of cases in the, in the, in the appellate courts about the interpretation of environmental statutes. That used to be, I used to work at the Justice Department and that's what I did there. And most of the time I didn't cite Chevron or rely on it. What we were doing instead was talking in sensible ways about how statutes work and representing agencies, I would say, Judge so-and-so, think about the way this statute is supposed to work in general. Listen to the agency's perspective on how this should happen. Chevron wasn't a club you wielded to get judges to do things that they didn't want to do. What it was was a basic animating principle of the way we talked about laws in court. So what is the practical impact of it? I think it changes the way we have conversations about the law in court. I think for your average judge or your, 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 the, what we hope is an average judge who's listening to both sides and really carefully considering what's right for the country, what's right to serve Congress purposes, whether what the agency is saying makes sense, maybe the debate doesn't actually change that much. On the other hand, if you are a result-oriented judge who wants to see the statute come out a different way or see the regulatory program come out a different way or who wants to second-guess the agency, you now have fewer guardrails. You get to say, I'm not listening to you at all because the Supreme Court said, I don't have to. You know, I'm curious, is there a way that the court could kind of sidestep this big question about Chevron and whether it should be upheld or not and really rule in a very narrow way that kind of turns this whole case into, you know, a nothing burger? I clerked for Justice O'Connor many, many years ago. That was her MO. Say as little as possible, as narrowly as possible, and then let's see how things play out. In fact, she didn't like doing cases at this broad principle level. She said, let's talk about the fishermen. Let's talk about this law. Let's talk about observers. What's amazing about this case to me is that the court refuses to deal with this case at that level. It's saying, we intentionally don't want to talk about the fishermen. We don't want to talk about the law. All we want to talk about is this Chevron deference principle in the abstract. This is a bombshell of a way to take a case. It's as if you said, I crashed my bicycle. I think this person hurt me. And the, the judge said, I don't want to talk about your bicycle and whether you, want to got, you got hurt. I want to talk about whether accidents should exist. And you'd say, well, like, huh? That's not why I came here. But the plaintiffs in this case are thrilled to have this question before the court because that's what they care about. The fishermen are a vehicle to get to where they want to go. And where do they want to go? They want the court to waggle its finger at all the, the other courts around the country and say, hey, even when those agencies are saying some sensible things, and even when you're not sure what to do, 
you know, you get first dibs in deciding what these laws mean. So one thing that's interesting to me is that this is not the first time that the current court, the Roberts Court, has talked about Chevron. And, and you know, they've, they've really been doing a lot of work to sort of limit the ways in which Chevron applies. Wondering if there's an opportunity in this case to continue that effort rather than outright overturn Chevron, and then whether or not there's any difference between those two things happening. I'll answer your question in a way, maybe in, in a different way, and that is that the, the Roberts Court has an agenda on this. People rely on the government to protect public health safety through regulatory processes. Many times those regulatory processes cost industries money to comply with. And the Roberts Court is a deregulatory court and a court that's interested not only in cutting down specific regulations, but in seemingly in reducing the power of the government to enact regulations that protect people. Because it fundamentally doesn't believe that, it fundamentally believes that there is overregulation. Why? I don't know. These people aren't policy experts, they're, they're academic lawyers. So the court's trying to take more power for itself. And it, the reason it's trying to do that is because it's trying to accomplish some policy ends. And this kind of noise around the principles and the deference and the abstract reasons or, or you know, reasons for it or disagreements with it, I think are, are secondary to the motivations of what the outcome of this will be, which is making agencies nervous to write regulations, giving judges an ability to strike down regulations if they don't agree with them, and sort of shifting power again back to judges and away from agencies. Well, I know it's always a bit dangerous uh, to read the tea leaves, um, but what do you see happening here? Uh, I see a straight up six to three decision. Um, I see six the six conservative justices, including Justice Thomas, who used to agree with the Chevron principle, recognizing that they've got they've got all the heads they need in the room right now. They're less interested in judicial deference than they are in judicial power at this point. What's changed since Justice Scalia was on the bench? We have a very powerful right-wing Supreme Court. And I think that very powerful right-wing Supreme Court recognizes that pushing down Chevron is in its interest when it is in charge. In a cynical way, most of the justices came from a background and through a political system that is uh, fundamentally and ideologically (laughs) anti-regulatory. And it's, you know, to cite a a bad example, when when a a lot of people who were surprised by the Dobbs decision, I said, why are you surprised? These are six people who were chosen. This was a litmus test (laughs) as part of their nominations. So similarly, I would say these are six people who were as the litmus test for their nominations was, are they against the idea or the the skeptical of federal regulation in general? So yeah, I think this is going to be six to three. Uh, Even, you know, Justice Thomas, who used to be in favor of this, is going to flip around and say, you know, I've, I've, I've got the situation's different than back in those days when I thought this was a sensible way to run government. Yeah, well, lots to watch out for there. Um, thank you so much uh, for walking us through all that, Sam. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate what you do in helping people understand what might otherwise seem like a case about herring. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Lydia, that's going to do it for today's show. Join us again next week. Until then, of course, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. 
Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know, but you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts.